0: And thanks for listening.
1: Hey, climate conscious listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to the C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can check out videos, podcasts and more at climateone.org. This
2: is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. Today, our host, Greg Dalton, is taking a look at some pretty compelling ideas for grappling with the greenhouse gases that are creating havoc with our weather and our economy.
3: Carbon negative concretes, carbon nanofibers directly from CO2, the possibility of putting big chiller boxes in the Antarctic and cooling the air enough that the CO2 falls out of snow. I mean, some of these things may really buy us some time.
2: While there are plenty of ideas about what to do about climate change... We often don't know what to do with our feelings about it or how to talk about it with others.
4: How do we break the taboo about talking about this in a way that's not touchy-feely, it's not particularly emotional, it's just very normal and it's very naturalized. Climate science, hope and worry. Up next on
2: Climate One. is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Claire Schoen. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. The historic climate summit in Paris is behind us, and nations around the world are facing up to what it all means and what they need to do to live up to the lofty promises made. Yet scientists and politicians agree that these goals for dialing back global warming are only the tip of the iceberg. With 2015 breaking the record for the hottest year ever and 2014 holding the number two spot, plans for coping with an increasingly hot and dry world need to be part of the strategy as well. And facing this future can be scary. So this hour we'll also explore ideas for how to handle the anxiety and stress that many of us are feeling about all this. Let's start by talking to three climate champions who are down in the trenches, digging up solutions to the climate change challenge. CHRIS FIELD IS DIRECTOR OF GLOBAL ECOLOGY AT THE CARNEGIE INSTITUTION FOR SCIENCE AT STANFORD UNIVERSITY. DR. FIELD STUDIES HOW ECOSYSTEMS CAN BE PART OF A CLIMATE SOLUTION. JANE LUCHENKO IS FORMER CHIEF OF THE NATIONAL OCEANIC AND ATMOSPHERIC ADMINISTRATION, OR NOAA. TODAY SHE'S A DISTINGUISHED PROFESSOR AT OREGON STATE UNIVERSITY. AND KEN ALEX IS DIRECTOR OF CALIFORNIA'S OFFICE OF PLANNING AND RESEARCH. HE WAS AT GOVERNOR BROWN'S SIDE AT THE PARIS SUMMIT. Here's our conversation about moving the ball forward post-Paris.
1: Jane Lubchenco, the Paris Climate Agreement is historic. A lot of people have been working toward this for, for decades. How do you feel about the Paris Climate Deal?
5: Even though it doesn't get us as far as we need to go, it sets us on that path. And I could just sense, not only in Paris, but around the world the relief the excitement uh sort of recommitment that it it energizes everybody and i think it's really a virtuous cycle you know good things feed on good things and it really is an amazing accomplishment and i have to say how important it was that we had really strong science to underpin that it's very exciting
1: the big win that many people concerned about the climate needed. Ken Alex, what does the Paris climate deal mean to you personally?
6: To me personally, uh, a lot more work. <laughs> 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 Literally, the morning that it got signed, I get a call from the governor and he says, we've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> this is really hard. We, we've got to get 40% reduction by 2030. What, what are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> so I asked him for, you know, maybe an hour off.
1: <laughs> it's a lot of work, but also, you know, how does it feel, this moment of Paris? A lot of excitement, a lot of joy?
6: Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I think this is a really a moment to say, you know, it would have been nice to have been here before, but here is where we are now, and really it feels like a transformative moment. We have 197 nations that have all agreed that we have to do something about climate change. Now, I take that with some amount of salt because we'll have an election in this country and one of those countries might change course. That would be pretty devastating, but there's still California.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Chris Field, some scientists think this deal is not enough that it's weak, it's toothless, including perhaps some people in this room.
7: It is weak and toothless and fabulous. You know, <laughs> I think that, that's what people need to understand. It it has tremendous moral authority, and it has the opportunity to galvanize next steps. Monkey Moon said it's a foundation and not a. It's not an endpoint, and you know there is a tremendous amount of work to do, but there's a, a license and an enabling to do it that I, I think we haven't seen. And I, I think that it has the potential to reorient not only the way we think about the global energy system, but the way we think about lots of aspects of international relations.
1: So Jane Lubchenko, what does it mean going forward? Okay, there's a deal. <laughs> I liken it to everybody's agreed to go on a, on a diet, and now the exercise and, and the <laughs> sweat begins. So where do we go from here?
5: Well, I think... There are a lot of things that will happen because we have an agreement. I think there's a very strong signal to the business community that there are going to be new business opportunities. And that is really powerful. I think that the moral authority that Pope Francis articulated that helped pave the way for the agreement will continue and is an invitation to various faith-based groups and religions around the world to help be part of the next steps and to be engaged. And because the agreement now has built into it mechanisms for verification, mechanisms for making new commitments that are more aggressive, I think there is the expectation that this is a start and that there's going to be more opportunity down
1: the road. Ken Alex, this Paris Agreement starts in 2020, but governors and mayors are acting now. So tell us what they were doing in in Paris.
6: So California, along with a province in Germany called Baden-Württemberg, felt that the international community and the international effort didn't have sufficient ambition in terms of our climate goals. So we devised an agreement called the Under-2-MOU in which all the jurisdictions that signed it agreed to uh, a goal of 80% to 95% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions from 1990 levels by the year 2050 or under two tons per capita. And the difference there is there are developing areas of of the world that are already below two tons, and it would make no sense for them to reduce 80% from their current levels. We started this one year ago just as an idea. And by the end of uh, the Paris negotiations, we had 124 jurisdictions representing $19.9 trillion of GDP, over a quarter of world GDP, having signed up to this greater ambition. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And this includes 34 jurisdictions in Africa. Uh, multiple tropical forest states, really a north-south coalition that's quite unusual. And, and so now the challenge is going forward, how do we make sure that this coalition has a voice in the process, um, and how do we keep pushing forward, share information, technology, et cetera? And that's part of my job to, to help figure that out.
1: We're talking about climate change and science with Jane Lubchenco, Chris Field, and Ken Alex. Chris Field, uh, some of your colleagues at Stanford have done research on the climate connection to drought.
7: Tell us what's the latest science. I think the California drought is really a a parable for the kinds of things we'll see around the world, where we're not going to have disasters every year, but we've really uh, loaded the dice or or tilted the playing table so that unfavorable outcomes are are more likely. Uh, Noah's work shows really clearly that it takes the combination of a dry year and a hot year in order to have a high probability of drought. We used to have occasional hot years and occasional dry years, but now every year is a hot year. And it means that the probability of having the two together is much higher than it was.
1: Ken Alex, 2016, probably going to be hot, might be wet, might be dry, depending on El Nino. What's the priorities for the Brown administration for what you want to do in California in 2016?
6: So all parts of the economy, from renewables in in the energy system to building efficiency to uh, how are we going to deal with natural and working lands, ensuring that they're sinks uh, for carbon rather than sources. All of that is going to be updated, particularly with an eye towards 2030 and our 40% reduction goal, 450 million tons of carbon emitted every year in California, down to 260 That is a very substantial change, and we want to do it in a way that is not so disruptive that we create a political dynamic that makes it untenable. We're going to go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. My name is Wayne
1: Roth. I'm a member of 350.org. I have a question for Dr. Field. Back in 2013, I heard you give a talk at Stanford talking about extreme climate events. And in the question and answer, someone asked you, well, how many... Billion-dollar climate events have there been, two or three? And you said, 12 or 13, and you said, it's horrifying. And that word, that emotional word horrifying, really rang with me and the people around me. It, it, it made us feel something that the scientific words don't communicate quite as well. And I wish that scientists such as yourself would emphasize the emotional impact to people so that we can understand it better.
7: I um, participated in a forum with Bill Kibben recently, and, and he was talking about our IPCC report, and he said, after decades, the uh, IPCC finally uh, got a thesaurus, those, uh, so they can, they can actually uh, characterize in emotional as well as in factual terms what's going on. And it is really important to find words that connect with people. Let's go to our next question.
1: I'm John Mashey. Um, this is a question for uh, Dr. Lubchenco uh, dealing with Congress. Over in the House, uh, there is this fellow who has a a beautifully gerrymandered uh, district in Texas that seems to want to bother your old agency.
5: Chairman Lamar Smith, who chairs the House Committee on Science, has been going after NOAA scientists, accusing them of uh, manipulating science to try to discredit the science to inhibit scientists, to put a chilling impact uh, on the scientific community. So this is an ongoing pattern. I I think what can be done is to really shine a spotlight on it and to say this is really inexcusable. NOAA has uh, a spectacular scientific integrity policy that was created when I was at the helm and for which I'm very proud.
1: Let's go to our next audience
4: question. Hi, my name is Carter Brooks. I'm an artist and philosopher of climate art. One of the criticisms of the Paris Agreement, but personally I think one of the brilliant pieces of it, is that the commitments have no legal, they're not legally binding, which much has been made <laughs> about how that was done to, so we could do things in this country because we could never pass a legally binding. But I think it, yeah. it loosens the, loosens the muscles so people can actually get to work. I think it's <clears throat>
7: important not to underestimate the power of peer pressure as opposed to <laughs> some kind of legal requirements. Yeah. and. I increasingly see being actively involved in developing solutions to the climate challenge as being a hallmark of a great nation, and that's one of the best things that came from the Paris Agreement. Uh, It really will engender this virtuous circle where the fact that you don't have a requirement can in many cases even increase ambition.
5: I think one of the brilliant things about the lead-up to Paris was having countries make voluntary commitments before the summit started, and uh, especially when the U.S. and China together said, "We, as the two leading nations that have the largest greenhouse gas emissions, are going to do something." That really triggered a lot of this social pressure, and and there is really a lot of needing to avoid being shamed, <laughs> and wanting to be part of the club. And I think that's a very powerful motivator.
2: Greg Dalton has been exploring actions and reactions after the Paris Climate Agreement with Chris Field, Director of Global Ecology at Stanford's Carnegie Institution for Science, Jane Lubchenco, former head of NOAA, and Ken Alex, a Senior Advisor to California Governor Jerry Brown. Free podcasts of this and other Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org. You're listening to Climate One. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. In the Paris Agreement, essentially every government in the world pledged to fight climate disruption. But meanwhile, the mercury is rising and the weather is getting weirder. From America to Australia, people are stepping up to the plate with solutions. Some are banking on visionary technology, while others are simply climbing up to their roof to install more solar panels. For insight into these ideas, Greg talked to Tim Flannery, an Australian scientist and author of the new book, Atmosphere of Hope, Searching for Solutions to the Climate Crisis. Ben Santer, a climate scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And Rebecca Shaw, who was a senior lead scientist with the Environmental Defense Fund. Here's our conversation about hope
1: and action. Rebecca Shaw, you were a budding marine scientist in the late 1980s, and you were down in the Amazon and had kind of a climate epiphany. Tell us what happened.
0: Yeah, I was a research assistant on a project. It was after I finished my undergraduate degree at UC Santa Barbara, and I was so excited to study the natural world, and, and I went down there at the time when uh, there was a burgeoning understanding of what was going on with deforestation and its effect on climate. But the governor of Amazonas, the state of Amazonas, actually uh, had a program where he was handing out chainsaws to the settlers so that they could go and settle the land at the time. And we saw the lake we were living on go from complete 100% forested to 100% deforested in the very short amount of time. And certainly got the attention of all of us working down there. And that's when I really realized that it wasn't enough to study the natural environment, but it was, had to understand the social systems that were going to sustain it.
1: Ben Santer, uh, you wrote a sentence in 1995, famous sentence in Climate. What was the consequence of writing that sentence? Sure.
8: In 1994, as a convening lead author for the Climate Change Detection and Attribution chapter of the IPCC. And after evaluating the scientific evidence, hundreds of studies, our group came to the historic conclusion that, quote, the balance of evidence suggests a discernible human influence on global climate. And I had no idea that that single sentence was going to change my life profoundly and really uh, change the world. How did that change your life? Well, the Global Climate Coalition, this consortium of energy interests, didn't like that balance of evidence finding. Because it said humans are causing it,
1: no Martians or whatever, it's humans are causing this disruption.
8: It said we've evaluated the evidence, and for the first time, the national and international scientific community spoke with one voice and said, we've seen enough. The evidence is pointing in one direction. Humans were no longer simply innocent bystanders in the climate system. We were actually active participants. And unfortunately for me, I was the messenger, and a lot of powerful people didn't like that message.
1: And they personally attacked you?
8: The Global Climate Coalition produced a report entitled IPCC, uh, Institutionalized Scientific Cleansing. And this was at the time that ethnic cleansing was going on in Bosnia. So the accusation was that I specifically was responsible for purging all scientific uncertainty from this chapter of the IPCC report. So it was a pretty serious allegation, and one gentleman uh, circulated an email uh, stating that I had been indicted by the Hague International Court of Justice for, quote, falsification of international scientific documents, unquote. So nothing in my scientific career had prepared me for that kind of reaction.
1: Real hardball. Tim Flannery, you were in Japan with the late climate scientist Steve Schneider, and you had something of a climate epiphany. Tell us about that.
3: I'd been working for years before that in the high mountains of New Guinea, and I'd seen that the tree line was advancing on all of those mountains. And I knew that there was some sort of climate signal there, but couldn't kind of put it together in my mind what was happening. And uh, I went to a, a biodiversity conference in Japan, and Steve Schneider spoke for an hour and that totally changed my world. It put everything in context. I could see then that those alpine environments with all of their unique flora and fauna just wouldn't survive unless we did something about climate change. And I thought the best thing I can do is write a book to put it in simple terms for people, uh, what this was all about. And that
1: book, The Weather Makers, came out in 2005 or so. A lot of people have been impacted by that book. And Rebecca Shaw, climate is still pretty abstract, but food is one area where it's real for people. There's some interesting shifts happening in food companies that are really trying to address climate solutions. But talking about good, healthy food.
0: What's happening now is you see the impacts actually becoming very real. And when the impacts are actually affecting the things we care about, our health, our safety, or even our pocketbooks, we begin to pay attention. And one of those areas is food. Food companies are paying attention to the risks that are associated with increasing temperatures, and more variable precipitation in the future. And they're making some really significant commitments to uh, decrease greenhouse gas emissions from their entire corporation.
1: So tell us about Cheerios and Campbell's Soup, two icons in the American supermarket Yeah, so, so
0: we work uh, with uh, large corporations to help them make sustainability commitments. And some of those companies that we're working with include Walmart, Kellogg's, General Mills, They are making real investments into their companies and outside their companies. So supply chains are the link between the, say, General Mills and its Cheerios, to the oat miller, to the oat grower, all the way down to the farm to make investments and commitments to soil health, to decrease fertilizer use, which actually emits a very powerful greenhouse gas, nitrous oxide, 300 times more powerful than CO2. And they're also making really significant commitments to water use efficiency. So as precipitation becomes more variable, we can make sure that we have sustainable water supplies. It's a real challenge. Food companies can't do it alone, but I see them as some of the leaders.
1: Tim Flannery, are you seeing similar signs of optimism and change in the agricultural area in Australia?
3: Farmers are at the cutting edge of this. They watch the seasons carefully. I was just speaking to Australian grape growers recently and they told me that the season for harvest had advanced by a month over a couple of decades. That's very significant for them. It's just getting too hot. The grapes are getting sunburned. They don't have the water reliability and bushfires are tainting the grapes with the smoke because we're getting really mega fires in Australia now as well. So conditions are changing and um, we, we are seeing farmers now become much more proactive about reducing emissions. We've got a fantastic institution in Australia called the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. And it's helping farmers to reduce emissions wherever it can. So if you own a piggery, you can go to the CEFC for some funding and unlock some more bank funding to put a biodigester in so that you deal with that waste rather than just let a methane, which is you know, 20 times more potent than our CO2 as a greenhouse gas.
1: Is it going to affect Australian beer?
3: Well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, that's one I haven't looked into, but it's certainly affecting Australian As soon as wine. it
1: does,
0: the whole system's going to change. That's true. <laughs> Sunburned
1: grapes, I like that one.
0: It's a really incredibly exciting time to be working on this issue because you really see a lot of social change. You see people dealing with this information. There's a lot of positive reaction out there on the planet to help us adapt, to create more resilient society and more resilient food systems, and to really take a leadership role and really move the ball forward in in terms of creating positive change so we avert disaster, I think is really worth our attention.
1: Getting off fossil fuels could result in uh, healthier people, cleaner communities, cleaner economy. Tim Flannery, if someone's listening to this, what are some top things that someone can do? Okay, all right, what do I do in my life? What do I change tomorrow?
3: The new thing that I think is just infinitely powerful is the emergence of these groups of concerned citizens mm-hmm. who are working together to do something. You know, we've got a little group in Australia called Solar Citizens who own solar panels on roofs. They're hardly radicals. Most of them are pensioners or people with a heavy mortgage, you know. They're watching their budget, so they want to make sure they control their energy costs. But they've formed this group to say to governments, you know, we like this stuff. We want more clean energy. And, you know, Australia's leading the world with solar rooftop installations. About one in five Australians now benefits from solar electricity on their rooftop. So joining groups like that is really, really important. Australian Youth Climate Coalition, I think there's an American Youth Climate Coalition, is another great outlet for younger people. They use social media in ways that astonish me when I see that. You're just joining us,
1: Tim Flannery's author of the new book, Atmosphere of Hope. Other guests today at Climate One are Ben Santer from Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and Rebecca Shaw is a scientist with the Environmental Defense Fund. I'm Greg Dalton. Rebecca Shaw, other things that an individual could do? You know, If you already got solar panels, maybe an electric car, what can people do?
0: I'm going to stick with the food theme. What we eat and how we eat it and when we eat it is a really important driver of, of greenhouse gas emissions. And so if you're eating things that come from far away, they have a, a high carbon footprint because they had to be transported there. If it's a water-intensive crop in a drought-ridden region, it's a greenhouse gas-intensive food. And I think the biggest piece of it and the thing that we can all do is that 40% of all the food that's produced is wasted. And so just by watching that we don't waste food at restaurants in, uh, in our homes, that they we're careful that what we buy we're going to consume, is a really important step forward.
1: Ben Santer, what can a person do to have an impact?
8: Educate yourself. To me, it's that uh, understanding of the basics of the science, the understanding of the nature and causes of climate change and likely outcomes. So understand the basic science, get involved, get in, engaged, don't sit on the sidelines.
1: What do you say to a person who says to you, I heard it stopped, there's the pause, and there's been no warming for the last 15 years? Ben Santer, what do you say?
8: I first encountered that narrative in congressional testimony in 2011. One of the witnesses made that very statement global warming stopped in 1998. So, this is what I like to call science by assertion and by eminence of position he produced no evidence to support those claims that global warming stopped and that computer models couldn't produce these kind of pauses and he was wrong on on both counts we know that climate change is not an either or proposition all human all natural it's both The planet's going to warm, but that warming is going to take place against the backdrop of this rich year-to-year and decade-to-decade natural climate variability. So the expectation always was, scientifically, that you wouldn't see some linear increase in temperature, some straight line. You would see periods where warming accelerated and you would see short periods where warming showed little or no increase, where there was a slowdown. But 2015 was the warmest year on record, and the pause is over. (laughs) But the bottom line is the physics of the climate system will always trump ideology and will always trump disinformation.
1: Tim Flannery, you write about a number of third-way solutions, exciting technologies from planting trees to possibly storing carbon dioxide in the Antarctic. So tell us what's really exciting that you see that could really help on the solution side.
3: Well, look, I see those technologies as being inevitable because we've already committed, just with the greenhouse gas in the air, to one and a half degrees of warming. The Great Barrier Reef will be dead. Australia's Great Barrier Reef just can't survive that amount of warming. Moreover, it looks like we're not going to be able to change our energy systems fast enough to avoid two degrees. You know, we've had this decade of lost opportunity. It's been horrific. But the hope is that we can draw CO2 out of the air at scale. Now, for years, I was not certain that we could do that. But I've seen enough new developments that I think we will see that happen. Carbon negative concretes, carbon nanofibers directly from CO2, the possibility of putting big chiller boxes in the Antarctic and cooling the air enough that the CO2 falls out of snow. I mean, some of these things sound like science fiction now, but, you know, we're talking about 2050. Just think about the transition of last century from 1915 to 1950. So the horse-drawn era... And then 35 years later, 1950, nuclear power, jet aircraft. It sounds like science fiction. And I think that 2050 is going to sound even more like science fiction than it does today. And that may really buy us some time in order to both adapt and to reduce our emissions so we can avoid or just skim below that two-degree guardrail.
1: Let's also talk about solar, which is a very real very positive story. I think one of the, the most positive stories. Tim Flannery, you write in your book that solar costs have come down a 100 times in 10 years. That's phenomenal. So, is there more left to go? Solar is still only in 1% of power in the, in the United
3: States. Wow. How revolutionary could this be? Wind is a similar story. 4.1 cents a kilowatt hour. I mean, that was fantasy a year ago. Mm-hmm. Costs cool. have come down so much. And various large wind companies see a total revolution happening in the next five years. They see containerized wind turbines. So everything comes in a shipping container, built on site. 3D printers on the blades to keep them up to scratch so you don't need to replace the blades. You know, gearless wind turbines with so few moving parts that the maintenance is cut down. In the next five years, the cost of electricity from wind turbines is projected by these companies to be half what it is today. So we are seeing a huge change in technology in these areas. But the trouble is the time. The transition can't happen overnight globally. So we're committed to quite a lot, emitting quite a lot of CO2 in the next 20, 30, maybe even 40 years. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
8: Peter Joseph with Citizens Climate Lobby. I first want to thank uh, Tim for writing the first book I read about climate change, the weather makers in it. it, did get me started as an activist. It really does seem like things are different now than they were a year ago. It just feels different publicly with the Keystone decision, the Exxon revelations and this groundswell from corporate world and people's movements all over the world, I want to know, what are your milestones that you're looking at to gauge your own personal sense of dread
3: versus hope going forward? Thank you. Tim Flannery. That's a great question. There's a couple of big issues that still dodge us. Um, the, The gas issue, the fracking issue, you know, how much more money are we going to invest in that and lock ourselves in? to a fossil fuel future. You know, the sooner we start backing out of that, the better, because we won't be sinking capital into that, and hopefully we can go to the renewables. You know, what's going to happen with battery technology? You know, I've got a great hope for electric vehicles, but Tesla only made 36,000 units last year. There's a number of cars they made, and, you know, how quickly can we scale that up? And, of course, just how quickly we can institute some sort of carbon price, some sort of carbon tax with dividend or whatever, the sooner we do that, the quicker we can slam down on emissions. So they're some of the key things I'm looking at.
1: Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One.
3: My name is William Hardwick. I'm a physician. France is 80% nuclear,
0: clean air, cheap electricity, big exporter of electricity. Any comments?
3: would like to take that one. Tim Flannery? If you look at the nuclear industry, it's losing share in the electricity sector. A couple of decades ago, it was responsible for 17% of global electricity production. It's now down to 12%. And the reason people aren't investing in it is that, you know, you've, you've got to build a big plant, a 2,000 megawatt plant. It takes tens of billions of dollars to do that. And the payback time is 50 years, you know, for investors. And the competition is reducing cost 10% year on year, wind and solar, you know. And you can build wind and solar modular. So you can just say, all right, I'll have five wind turbines today. Next year, I'll have another five. So the capital costs are lower. France is moving away from nuclear at a very, very rapid rate. They're building one of the world's largest offshore wind farms, as we speak. So I I think that nuclear is probably going to be important in places like China, where capital costs are taken care of by the government. They've got quite an active program. But in the capitalist world, the stars are aligned against nuclear. Let's go to our last audience question, Climate One. Welcome. Thank you. I'm wondering if any of
8: you know of the congressmen or senators we ought to be supporting who are carrying the water for climate change in in our Congress. Chris Gibson's
1: a Republican member of Congress from New York who's got some Republicans together to come out of the closet on climate and say they need some action. Anyone else want to tackle
8: that? Kelly Ayotte, uh, Lindsey Graham, Pataki, uh, George number, Pataki, George Pataki. A number of voices uh, on the Republican side have recognize the reality of human-caused climate change and recognize that this is an issue for American jobs, national security. So I think some of the ideology is going out of it. That's one of the reasons for my own personal atmosphere of, of hope there that uh, <laughs> these these ideological divides are crumbling. Greg Dalton has been
2: discussing taking action to bring down the temperature with Tim Flannery, author of Atmosphere of Hope, Ben Santer, a climate scientist at Lawrence Livermore Labs, and Rebecca Shaw with the Environmental Defense Fund. We'd like to hear your ideas about taming the climate. Our email is commonwealthclub.org. Or join us on Twitter. Our handle is at Climate One. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. The climate challenge requires action, but in order to act, we need to be able to talk about the issues with both friend and foe. Yet climate disruption is just not something we discuss in a social setting. How do we start that conversation? Greg's next guests may have some insight into this impasse. Joan Blades, who may be best known for founding the advocacy group MoveOn.org, has also started a group called Living Room Conversations, which brings liberals and conservatives together to talk about the issues that divide us. Also joining Greg is Joshua Friedman, who's the CEO of the nonprofit Six Seconds, which explores the idea of emotional intelligence. He wrote the book Inside Change at the Heart of Leadership. And Renee Lertzman is a clinical psychologist and climate strategist. She's the author of Environmental Melancholia, Psychoanalytic Dimensions of Engagement. Here's our conversation about the emotional side of climate change.
1: Joan Blades, let's begin with you. Did you have a particular moment where there was a climate epiphany, or was it a gradual awakening where you came to realize that climate is something you ought to think
9: about? In 2005, I was part of a group called Reuniting America, bringing leaders on the right and left together to talk. And I had the opportunity at that point to talk with leadership of the Christian Coalition and Grover Norquist, and I had some great conversations Five years later, I realized that I could not have that same conversation and that having that human connection can make all the difference in the world because once I like you, and I hear you in a completely different way, and that was the inspiration for Living Room Conversations. As that boundary, talking about climate, became more impenetrable, we needed to make that human connection, and then things would become possible. So
1: it sounds like you're saying it's more difficult to talk about climate now, even though there's more evidence and it's more in the headlines, than it was 10 years ago. Is that right?
9: I believe that is the case, yes.
1: Josh Friedman, how do you talk to people who have very different values,
10: different sets of views on, on energy, climate, etc.? Carefully. <laughs> I have a, a family member who's very conservative, and I was thinking about the interactions with him and how I have sometimes retreated from, you know, it's Thanksgiving and like, oh, don't bring that up. But I feel (laughs) it's so important. And I also am kind of interested in his perspective. And my solution has been to make it personal. I mean, I, I am not a climate scientist and I don't have all these facts at my disposal. But last time I saw him, I said, wow, I just drove down through the Central Valley and it was so dry. I've never seen it like that. It really scared me. And so being able to speak from my own experience, I'm not telling him he's wrong. I'm just talking about what I'm seeing and feeling. And I, I think it's a way for me to assert myself without moving into polarizing conversation.
9: I mean, what we've seen modeled in the media and with leadership too often is this very disrespectful way of engaging with each other. And in a living room conversation is just, Two people with different viewpoints each invite two other people, their friends, so that's generally three and three, to have a conversation about a given topic. And then when we discover these people with very different ideas are actually kind, caring, intelligent, and on both sides we have some misimpressions there, then a great deal more becomes possible and allows for that kind of trust and intimacy to start to find your common ground.
1: Renee Lurzman, I feel sometimes that even when talking to people who accept climate reality, they still don't want to talk about it. They will talk about it for 30 seconds and then change the subject. Okay, let's talk about something lighter, more, hey, how about the Super Bowl, whatever it is, right? What's going on psychologically there? These are people who accept it, but still don't want to hold it too closely or too long.
4: Um, In my experience, it really comes down to anxiety and the kinds of anxieties that this topic can bring up for us, and not even knowing on a conscious level that that's what's happening. And so as social beings, we're constantly sort of calibrating and monitoring with one another what's acceptable or not to, to venture into. And when we're not getting the cues from others that it's actually you know, not okay, that we may make someone else uncomfortable or feel threatened, um, we tend to sort of shut down. And so how do we break the taboo about talking about this in a way that's not touchy-feely, it's not particularly emotional, it's just very normal and it's very naturalized? Calm the nervous system down so that we can actually have a conversation and access what we feel and think about this.
10: Josh Friedman? I think there's a real paradox here because I think a lot of us feel this growing sense of urgency and, you know, taking this kind of disarmed stance and, like, treating this as a neutral topic. It's not a neutral topic, you know, and when we start looking at the choices that we're making and the seriousness of those choices, I think it's really hard to cope with. I think it's really overwhelming, and I don't know about other people, but I'm just overwhelmed with normal life. You know and like mm-hmm. then you want to add on top of it, like, yeah. "Oh, is this purchase going to contribute to the destruction of the planet? It just becomes really hard to make it through the day, mm-hmm. so I think there's just a like a coping mechanism for this just overwhelmed sense is to just push it aside
1: and related to it, is that normal is that just a normal coping mechanism like we don't go around saying i'm going to die, i'm going to die i 'm going to die right you put it aside
4: well, we're designed to manage our distress precisely in that way by putting aside what's called disavowing, where you're not denying something, but you're choosing to not be in that experience. So how do we interrupt that or how do we navigate that? It makes me wonder about what happens when we acknowledge openly, yeah, it's really overwhelming, isn't it? It kind of sucks. Like, who wants to even think about this? This is a drag. And that itself can be quite liberating. It's like, yeah, you're right.
1: Joan Blades, when someone is a climate skeptic or denier, do you roll your... What happens when you roll your eyes or, or say, like, oh, you idiot?
9: If you roll your eyes, you've lost them. And I have conservative friends that have told me stories about... I, mean, I won't talk to my... you know. Daughter in law about climate because she feels deeply disrespected. So, the starting place is that emotional connection. And once you have that connection, then many things become possible.
10: I wonder if it's almost like, in order to influence somebody who disagrees with you, you have to be willing to be wrong yourself. Like, if I'm so certain I know that this is a crisis, and I'm talking to somebody who knows it's not a crisis. I'm asking them to change. Am I willing to change? And honestly, like, am I willing to say, well, maybe, you know, maybe there isn't really climate change. I, <laughs> like, that, that would be hard for me to uh, really be open.
4: But that's the basis of being collaborative, precisely that capacity to be open to being wrong, to not knowing. And my sense is that's in short supply right now in the climate space, and I, I think it's related to the anxiety and the fact that the stakes are so incredibly high. So my question is, how do we create the conditions that support our capacities to be a bit more open to that uncertainty that paradoxically unlocks more effective creative capacities than just, we're not going there. We're only going to talk about you know, what I call rah-rah environmentalism, like where the solutions are and there's no space.
1: Renee Lertzman is a climate strategist and advisor. Our other guests are Joshua Friedman, CEO of Six Seconds, and Joan Blades from Living Room Conversations. Joan Blades, some of your liberal friends are hysterical about climate, and your conservative friends help calm you down. Tell us how that works.
9: There can be a sense of panic when you Mm -hmm. see the world as you know it heading in a direction towards not- surviving. But we are deeply affected by our community, and my community now includes conservatives. I have techno-optimist friends that really think that technology and business is going to solve this problem. And I'm listening and going, that's really interesting.
10: My first reaction is that is just, it's just wishful thinking.
9: To solve a problem this complex, we are going to have to be agile and collaborative and have everybody's best ideas. Mm-hmm. And the only way I know to do that is to be working with everybody in the room <laughs> and listening to them and finding the place where we can create the win-win solutions.
10: It requires a lot of patience. <laughs> Sounds like it
4: requires Joan Blades running for Congress. I don't know. Um,
10: <laughs> um. Renee Lursman.
4: With the fixation on solutions, part of what's going on is we're crowding out any space at all, any oxygen, for just simply acknowledging and saying, Wow, like how do I feel about this and what are some ways I can respond to this? Because there's no space here for anything except solutions, then that can be really oppressive and I don't think very agile.
1: Renee Lursman, are there heroes and villains in the climate story?
4: Well, it sort of avoids the fact that we're all in this together. We're woven into a system where it's almost impossible to function without contributing to the problem. And guilt and shame around that is the most destructive kind of shutdown to any active engagement. So I think it's really delicate territory, actually.
1: Joan Blades, you think that during the the struggle for marriage equality, important things happened in terms of uh, moving away from (laughs) villainization. Tell us about that.
9: I sometimes use that as an analogy for the climate movement because there came a point where calling people homophobes and basically making them the enemy was seen as not helpful and that if you could make people your friends and they might not support gay marriage, they might not oppose it in the same way. And I think with climate, you've got some of the same quality of when you make people that have a different viewpoint, friends, they're going to have more interest.
10: So that sounds like empathy. Josh Friedman? Presumably many of the people here do believe that there's a serious and maybe even extremely serious issue with the climate. But to what degree are we willing to take responsibility for something that's really big and complicated and overwhelming? How does somebody who's open to this idea become somebody who's actually conscious and become somebody who's making more careful choices. And what I would suppose is that it has a lot to do with our own sense of purpose and identity. We don't change because we see, well, maybe in the future, sea levels are going to rise, but what kind of person do I want to be? And so I think if we can help ourselves think about the kind of people we want to be, and what our own identity is and what our own purpose is, that becomes a catalyst for change.
1: Renee Lertzman, I talked with some eighth grade students once about climate change. These are, what, 13 year olds, something like that? And mm. they looked at me as a person of knowledge, perhaps authority, and I couldn't tell them how bad I think it is. Mm. And I really had to hold back because you're 13 and I don't want to scare you. So, how mm. should someone mm. talk to children about? their future in an honest way, but also not scaring them. Mm
4: -hmm. Right, yeah. So this is um, a critical question around young people having the cognitive ability to process certain kinds of information and treading that line around um, engaging with the facts, the information. But at the same time...
10: Is it bad to be scared about this?
4: I don't think it is. I mean, I went through my crisis when I was young, but, and it, it mobilized me. Some
1: people say fear is debilitating, paralyzing, that hope is what motivates
10: people.
4: Mm-hmm. Right. I have said that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that as humans, we have incredible capacity to tolerate a huge range, and that we don't need to be patronizing around the fact that we only need hope and good news and good stories. What we need and hunger for as humans is authentic connection authenticity now the flip side of that is i don't think we want to burden young people with feeling like it's on them to have to solve and sort out our mess and that can backfire into complete nihilism and anger and rage
10: i think a bunch of 13 year olds looking at an adult who's not not telling them how, how what they really think most 13 year olds that is going to reduce their trust level mm-hmm. and being willing to be honest about our own fear and our own despair, as well as our own joy. Like optimism isn't denying problems. Optimism is confronting problems Mm -hmm. and saying, and we're going to do everything possible to make it better.
9: There are kids that could hear it and it would be great. And there are kids that would hear it and it would be really bad. Mm It would be a
10: total meltdown.
9: And not knowing those kids, that's why you did what you did.
10: I erred on the side of being cautious. I'm not maybe as honest as I might like to be in sort of sitting here in the cool light of day when I don't have a bunch of kids asking me hard questions. I mean, I recognize that I think I probably err on the side of caution.
1: We're going to go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
9: Hi, my name is Laura. I find myself thinking about anger as one of the emotions that comes up when I think about climate change. And I can see how that can be a real barrier to conversation, certainly. But there must be ways in which anger can also be tremendously
2: useful And so I wanted to, I'd love to hear you all comment on that.
10: Josh even So, I mean, anger is actually this incredibly great fuel for us. It tells us there's a problem, there's something in my way. That's why we have anger. And what anger does is it focuses our attention on the problem, and it gives us the energy to move through that problem. I think the challenge is we misdirect the anger. And if we can use the anger to galvanize our, our attention and energy, we're more powerful. Let's
1: go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One.
8: Thank you. My name is Brad Berman. My question is, how will Climate One and the panelists address people of color, of different cultures, and socioeconomic disparities?
1: We share the challenges of the environmental community writ large. Uh, it's something that we're aware of and that we're working on.
9: Living Room Conversations are an open source project that are up online that people have used in East Africa. And we were actually having a conversation with folks in Minnesota today that are planning a conversation on race. So it's for talking across differences of all kinds.
1: Let's go to our next question, the Climate
7: One. I'm Gary, Malaysian. Uh, when I talk with my conservative friends, I ask them if you were starting from scratch to design the planet Earth, would you include fossil fuels in the mix? And that goes to a whole other level and I would like your comment about that because it takes you out of a confrontational zone and one of actually thinking like wait a minute
10: you know what I love about Josh that? what I love about that question is yeah. the invitation to imagination mm-hmm. and I think that one of the things that helps us create change is when we can imagine things differently and that uh, imagination seems to me like a powerful tool for us uh, for any kind of change
2: Greg Dalton has been discussing hope and worry in the age of climate change. We heard from Joan Blades, co-founder of Living Room Conversations, Joshua Friedman, CEO of Six Seconds, and climate strategist Renee Lertzman. Free podcasts of all our Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org, where you'll also find video clips, photos, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. (laughs) Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. The audio engineer is William Bloom. I'm Claire Schoen, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.